Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? Nirajani is my next guest, and she expresses herself in a way that made me feel many of her experiences. She will share a part of her adoption story as an international adoptee, born in India and adopted by same-race parents. She always felt loved by her mother, father, and extended family, but during childhood, she felt something of great importance was being kept from her. She speaks about the Indian culture and the beliefs as it relates to the subject of adoption. I learned from her in this episode and felt the pain of deceit, even if it's perceived as protection by loving family members. Nirajani is vulnerable about how her mental health took a toll on her for a lengthy time as she shouldered by herself the burden of feeling like an imposter in her native land of India. It was with great anticipation to have this conversation with her once she reached out to me, because as a 28-year-old adoptee, she already has so much to offer the community. Allow me to introduce you to Narajani. Hi, Narajani. I want to welcome you to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you because you're 28 years old and your story mm -hmm. is so full. And I, I really like to talk to the younger generation. So I'm so glad you reached out to me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very excited to become more involved in the adoption community um, and to share my experiences. And so I only f found out about my adoption when I was a preteen and I dealt with a lot of internal struggles. And I always wished I had resources like this where I could hear of other adoptee experiences or connect with them for advice. So to now have this opportunity at this point in my life, I'm just I'm so eager to jump in and start creating more dialogue for young adoptees for mental health and wellness, especially within the South Asian community, and sort of just be that helping hand I wish I had had for myself. That's fantastic, because we really want to hear from you. I know the older generation, my generation, whenever we get together and talk about uh, adoption issues and those in the community, we're, we're really so pleased when the younger generation comes forward, because it's important. We have a lot to learn from from you. So I know you're an international adoptee. You were born in India. So do you want to start there and share as much or as little as you'd like about your story? Yeah, sure. Let's get into it. Um, so yes, I am an international adoptee. I grew up in Maryland and I grew up as a same race adoptee. So my parents are Indian as well and they had immigrated to the U.S. for higher education. And then they obviously settled down and built a life for themselves. And then in the early 90s, they went back to India and they got me. So I was adopted from an orphanage in Mumbai. 
and I was three months old at that time. I did not find out about my adoption until I was 12 years old. So growing up, I had a very enriched and cultured and happy childhood. Uh, I was an only child, but I had a huge extended family of several aunts and uncles and cousins, both here in the U.S. and back in India. And over the years, my cousins have filled the role of siblings in terms of both the fun times and the affection, but also as emotional support. So generally, I've always had a very fond relationship with all my family, and I've enjoyed bonding with them and having close ties. I was a very carefree child. I was talkative and I was silly and I was laughing and I was very confident. But I always had this sensitive side to me where I did not want to feel rejected or I didn't want to feel disliked by loved ones. And I had this pining to be loved deeply and to be loved unconditionally. And essentially it was like to be loved for who I am. It was a very melancholy uh, feeling, which I would later make sense of as I got older. Yeah, but my adoptive parents, and I'm just going to refer to them as my parents moving forward because they're the only ones who have raised me and really imprinted lifelong values in me. So they're my parents. They're mine. I'm theirs. But they made our home so full of laughter and music and culture and a blend of Eastern and Western influences and travel and activities. And so I had a very wholesome upbringing and I was definitely very loved and adored by everyone in my family. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally Um, get that when you say I'm just going to refer to them as my parents. I totally get that. Yeah, that's 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 just how I've always viewed it. And so there's there's nothing else. I almost feel like I didn't need to make the clarification. But then I was like, let me do it just to be safe. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, growing up, I could always I guess I knew I looked different from my parents. So I have a much darker skin tone and my build is a lot more petite and I'm just like skinnier, smaller. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I thought much of it as a child. And growing up here in the U.S., I think people just assumed we were all biologically related because we were all Indian. Mm-hmm. There's only one instance I remember remember here in the U.S. where I was six or seven years old and we were at a Dunkin' Donuts. And the cashier kept observing me and my parents. And then he finally asked, so how come your kid is so much darker than you? Just mm, complete stranger. Complete stranger. And I remember feeling very self-conscious in that moment because I, I obviously I knew I was darker than my parents, but no one had ever really called it out in that manner right. to my face. And my dad pretended not to hear the question. He didn't address it. And at that point, my mom very strategically walked me away to find a table and just removed me from the situation. But other than that, like... The only other adoptees I knew here were at school, and they were all transracial adoptees. So it was just more visually apparent. And I also, at that time, I didn't know of any other Indian families who openly shared that they had an adopted kid. So adoption was this cool concept that I knew of, but only through school and classmates and not through my own Indian community. And I think it was either I was in third or fourth grade, and my friend at that time went during recess, she was talking to me about being adopted. And I wanted to sympathize with her and bond with her so badly that I lied. And I told her like, yeah, I'm adopted too. Wow. Now this is, this is, I'm thinking third, fourth, so maybe nine or 10 years old. Yeah. Okay. And the joke was obviously on me, which I didn't even know Mm. because I wasn't lying. Right. Right. But you didn't know it at the time. 
I did not know it at that time. It's just something, this incident is something I think of now. And I'm like, oh, that was really silly. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, though. It is. It is, for sure. But yeah, so growing up, my parents had always told me I was born in Boston. And that's where we lived for the first year of my life. But they didn't really talk about much else around my birth. So there was never a mention of what day I was born or what time I was born or what hospital it was at. And I suppose I must have asked for those details at some point or another as a child. But generally, that just felt like a taboo topic. And like anything really related to conception or birth was not meant to be talked about with kids. Mm. So I just assumed this was part of, you know, the more conservative side of Indian culture where, you know, people don't talk about relationships or romance or sex or where babies come from. So I just, you know, I, I too just thought like, oh, it's not it's not a conversation I'm supposed to have with them. So let me let me just be clear. Did mm-hmm. you say that they didn't talk to you about your birth date? So I knew my birth date, but nothing else around my birth. Okay. Yeah. So I've always known my birth date. And Mm -hmm. as far as I know, that's as accurate as it is. Okay. Yeah. And then I just want to go back just real quick. Mm -hmm. When you were six or seven and this stranger is questioning how you look compared to your parents, that, that discussion never went any further between you and your parents? No, my my parents in that moment pretended not to hear the question and mm-hmm. it was never talked about again. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So after you, uh, because you want to bond with this friend who's adopted, you, you say, I'm adopted too. Where does that go? I, I think it just, that just ended there for that time being. Okay. Yeah. So because I didn't find out until many, many years later. Right. Right. Yeah. So I grew up thinking I was born in Boston. Mm -hmm. And then one day I was 11 at that point. My parents and I went to get our passports renewed or something like that where we had our passports with us. And on the drive back home, I was in the back seat and I was looking at my passport. And I noticed that my birthplace was listed as Mumbai, India. Mm. And I was so confused because I obviously didn't know this fact before. And in my head, it was always Boston. Right. So I asked my parents. I was like, hey, I thought you said I was born in Boston. And they exchanged such a quick, such a subtle glance at one another that Mm. if you didn't feel like something was up, you wouldn't have noticed it. Right. I just can picture that. Yeah. Yeah. But then they just kept staring ahead as if I hadn't asked the question. Right. And so, you know, I'm 11. So I was like, okay, hello. Right. Like I was trying to get their attention. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Because you're you're taking all this in. It's like within seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, my mom very nonchalantly was like, oh, no, we told you it was Mumbai. And that was it. Like left it at that and was very clear the conversation was not supposed to go anywhere else. Mm. And I wanted to press further, but. There was such a vibe of uncomfortability and it just, I felt awkward asking more, almost like I was doing something wrong or speaking out of line or misbehaving. Mm-hmm. That discrepancy of my birthplace really sat in my head for many months that followed. Sure. And yeah. I used to just sit and like try and envision scenarios where like, oh, maybe my mom was pregnant with me here in the U.S. and then they went back to deliver me in India. And then we all moved back to the U.S. But something didn't add up because 
why would they have told me Boston and then completely swept that under the rug like that didn't happen? Right. And so this confusion and this awareness of a potential lie started to build in my head. And soon it was after my 12th birthday, I ended up confronting my parents. It just was building and building. Yeah. So you were wrestling with this by yourself. Was there anybody Mm -hmm. else you talked to about what happened? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. Okay. Yeah. And so it was, it was a very heated, very emotional and scary situation for me to confront because I was the one who was taking the initiative and essentially having to call my parents out on a lie. And mind you, at that time, it felt like a lie. It resembled a lie, but it was not a confirmed lie. So I could have potentially been falsely accusing my parents of something. Mm -hmm. So I was being really bold, questioning them. And, you know, in Indian culture, you're also raised not to question elders and not to be confrontational because that's disrespectful. Right. So it it was... very, very nerve wracking for me. And the confrontation, it came with a lot of prying and a lot of crying. And for a while, I remember that it took a course of a whole day where I was pestering my mom. She just kept denying that something was amiss. Now you're 12, was, right? This is, a, mm-hmm. yeah, you're 12. So I was 12. I was stubborn. I was passionate. And I just refused to let it go at this point. Like it was eating me up. And I was like, this is I'm, I'm going to figure out what's going on. Right. And the night I found out, it was not, it was really not pretty because I was so upset at that point. I'd been crying for hours. I was in a state of distress. My emotional regulation was non-existent at age 12. Yeah. So I was yelling. I was crying hysterically to the point where my throat was hoarse. And I just knew I was being left in the dark about something, but I didn't know what it was. And my mind was running a million miles a minute and I was like having passing thoughts like, oh, maybe I have some sort of terminal disease and I'm going to die very young. Like I just didn't even know what it was at that point that I was fighting for. Mm. But I was just yelling over and over again, like, you know, it's my life. I deserve to know the truth just over and over and over again. My parents finally did sit me down that evening with my grandparents because we were visiting my grandparents at that time. And that's when they told me that, you know, They had wanted a child, and so they came back to India to find one. And once that truth was out, I was very calm. I was, like, suddenly very calm. Mm -hmm. Almost like, oh, that's it. But why wasn't this shared with me before? Yeah. So there was... I really didn't understand the big deal. (laughs) Yeah. And there was some sense of relief for you. For sure. Yeah. But they didn't use the word adopted even when talking to me. So, yeah, they didn't use the word adopted, even when they told me. And I had to clarify and be like, oh, so I'm adopted. Is mm-hmm. that what you're saying? Right. And my grandfather is a he's a very well-read man. And he can quote Shakespeare or Robert Frost at the drop of a hat. And so he gave a very eloquent reply to that, where he said something along the lines of, to adopt is to keep for oneself. But your parents didn't keep you to themselves. They shared you with the entire family. Mm. And it was it was beautiful. But again, the word adopt was not being used. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, for a family that typically doesn't engage in emotional moments together like that, that night is something I'll never forget. And my parents, my grandparents kept reassuring me that I was so loved and I should never feel like I'm not part of the family. 
And the truth is, I never did. And I still never do feel like I'm an outsider. Like I mentioned earlier, like my parents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, they've always been mine. I've always been theirs. There's been no doubt about that. Right. But I just didn't understand why my adoption was brought up as this sad, scary topic and why I was being told that, like, no matter what, I was one of them as if, you know, society was otherwise going to label me as an imposter. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking that it has to be connected to the culture. Very much so. Yeah, very, very much so. And I... Well, I'm going to get into that because I, I did a whole deep dive. <laughs> right, right. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So, yeah, so my parents, they explained to me that they were waiting to tell me until I was old enough to understand the situation. And they obviously did not want me to be hurt by the truth. And so I think that's why they weren't able to bring it up sooner. Mm-hmm. But like you said, there were also underlying cues and stigma in Indian culture that probably made it harder for them to start the dialogue. Right. So it sounds like they were, in their minds, protecting you. Absolutely. Yeah, during that time when you were 12. Yes, they absolutely wanted to protect me from being hurt, but I think it was also from being hurt by society Mm -hmm. that I could face prejudice. So after I found out I was adopted, I was like, oh, this is cool. And I reached out to some of my cousins to be like, oh, my God, guess what? And I wanted to, like, drop this dramatic truth bomb on them. And it would be the most anticlimactic thing ever because they would all reply very calmly, like, oh, yes, we knew, or I'm so glad you finally know, and we love you so much. Wow. So they all knew. They all knew. And that's when I quickly began to realize that, one, not only did everyone in the family know about my own past before I did, But two, they were kind of all in on the fact that I didn't know, and Mm. everyone had kept quiet for 12 years. That makes me so emotional right now. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, 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 you don't have to apologize at all. But that is ultimately what impacted me very deeply in the years that followed. Yeah. All LDAs talk about that, and I know LDAs, Late discovery adoptees is usually meant for those that are adults, like 18 and over. But I've always felt, I'm I'm not an LDA, but I've always felt for people that learn at 10 or 12. Like 12, I'm clear on what was going on in my life when I was 12. I, you know, I wasn't mm-hmm. grown, but it's, you're old enough. So I always wondered, yeah, late, late discovery is still, it impacts a 12-year-old. It does. It really does. I'd been left in the dark, and then adoption was this part of my life that it was basically no one wanted to address it as if it was a shameful thing or an upsetting thing. Yeah. And I had to be the one to investigate and find out the truth myself. Like, no one had sat me down to initiate it themselves. And even after I found out, my parents and other relatives, they never brought up adoption again. So no one really, like, checked in on me over the years or asked if I had any further thoughts or questions I hadn't seen my adoption papers so I didn't even know at that point the name of the orphanage that I was in for those first three months I didn't feel comfortable asking more because just getting my parents to admit that I was adopted was such a challenge that bringing up anything else around the topic it felt so daunting and it almost felt like I was being cruel to my parents 
again, I just didn't want to stir the pot further and didn't feel like a safe space to. Right. So my teenage years, and I would say even my early 20s, they were very difficult because I felt internally very lonely, very isolated and distrustful. It was like the rug had been pulled out from under me and I just, I felt like I had to be on my toes and stay vigilant for other things I was potentially being excluded from or being lied to because someone could easily pull a fast one on me if I wasn't vigilant. Mm-hmm. And I love my parents so much, but it really felt like had I not confronted them, like well, maybe I wouldn't have ever known the truth until much, much later, if at all. Right. At that point in my life, I just, I didn't know who had my back. I, that's that's essentially what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And in high school, I would hear of other adoptees who had seen like their adoption papers or seen pictures of the day that they were adopted or the time that they spent in an orphanage. Or their families would have annual celebrations to commemorate the day they had joined the family, like gotcha days. I don't like calling them that. It's a little silly, but. And I just, I had a lot of confusion and anger as to why I wasn't in a family that openly did all those things. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I didn't have any other resources to turn to, and my mental health took a plunge. And there wasn't a space for me to share even this with my family either. Mental health in South Asian culture is a very touchy subject. It deserves more attention and empowerment, and I can get into that a little later, but there was just not a space to discuss any of this. And around that time, both my parents faced life-altering health crises when I was like 14 or 15, And it just added tension to home. You know, it was sort of insinuated at that point that any sort of blip or misunderstanding or perceived trouble that I caused was adding to their stress load. And so I just wanted to isolate myself and not draw attention or potentially add to their health issues. So I had to, I guess I had to navigate the basic growing pains of adolescence while managing cultural differences because I was still being raised here and my parents had traditional Indian expectations. And then I was also trying to make sense of my adoption and my backstory. It was just, it was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot to manage. It was, it was a lot. So now I knew I was adopted, but I really didn't think much of my biological family. The one thing my parents told me when they revealed I was adopted was to not harbor any sort of hate or resentment or negative feeling towards my biological parents, because Obviously, none of us knew what the circumstances were, but they must have been very difficult. So I just, I really didn't think much of them or really envision them as people who had a past or nothing like that. And more recently, I've heard of adoptees having reunions with their birth mothers or their siblings. Again, it's not something that crossed my mind. I think I'm more aware of it now. At one level, it seems magical and fulfilling, but I think I've also, at this point in my life, I've resorted to it just not being a feasibility for me. And I think I'm okay with that, I think. In a country like India, there's, what, like 1.3 billion people? Right. Finding finding a biological parent or a biological relative would be like finding a needle in a haystack, mm-hmm. um, especially with no information to work off of. Right. I um, I'm thinking now as to why you wouldn't necessarily be thinking about a reunion or searching because it's like you first have to come across this one hurdle. And I'm going to use the example of um, I'm a domestic adoptee 
and not having my original birth certificate because mm-hmm. it was against the law prior to 2010, how could I wrap my mind around a search if I don't even have this document? <laughs> like the you know, mm-hmm. first hurdle is that document. So yeah, you're thinking India, all those people, like it's just the first hurdle is what you got to get over first. Uh, exactly. You, yeah. So I'm glad you shared that. Yeah. And I have a friend who I later came to find out was adopted from the same orphanage as me. And she once shared how her file stated that she was found as a baby in a trash can on the streets of Mumbai. So, Mm. like, I don't have any information on where I was found. I don't know if someone dropped me off at an orphanage. I don't know what happened. Right. But if children are being left on the road, it's virtually impossible to track anything down past that. Mm. Yes. Yeah, but as a young woman now, um, now that I'm settling down, in life. So I got married two years ago and my husband and I, we want to have kids in the future. I think more recently I have found myself pondering about what my birth mother might've been like. Generally things like, you know, what her personality might've been, or if she had quirks and do I have a similar personality or similar quirks? Do I have features that resemble her? Because, you know, others in my family can turn to their parents or aunts or uncles and find resemblances. And that's something I just can't do. And actually earlier this year, when the COVID situation was disastrous in India, I had a passing thought that it took me by surprise when I had the thought. But I was reading the news and at one point I thought to myself, I was like, I hope my biological mom is doing all right. I hope Mm. she's safe and I hope she's healthy. And I remember I thought it and I was so like, whoa, that was unexpected. Yeah. (laughs) So I've definitely, I think I've become more aware and more sensitive to the fact that my biological mother is a whole other person out there. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of just where the train stops for now. Right. So when you were a teenager, I'm just thinking and going back to the six, seven-year-old and that converse well, not conversation, but the stranger asking that question, did you ever find yourself wondering at any point, yeah, I would like, to see who looks like me, like who I look like. For sure. Like. For sure. Um, so I had the good fortune and I was so blessed that I used to be able to spend my summers in India growing up. So my parents and I would go there for a two, three month stretch every year. And it was wonderful. I got to connect with my homeland and the culture in a way that a lot of other children of immigrants are just not able to. To this day, it's something I'm very grateful for I mean, and I'm so proud of because I have I have this rooted identity in being Indian, but also being Indian American. And there is a distinction between the two. So I'm very, I'm very happy that I'm able to identify with both. But being a same race adoptee, it came with a lot of nuances, especially amongst other Indians. I would find myself being very self-conscious every time we went to India. You know, India is a beautiful country and it has a rich history and a rich culture. But just like any other society and community, there are aspects that are less than ideal and could use improvement. A huge one for Indian culture or South Asian culture broadly is colorism and casteism is quite prevalent in social interactions. And so me having a darker skin tone in India, it made me stick out like a sore thumb amidst my family. 
people could spot that I was different immediately and could almost, you know, they can almost pinpoint like, okay, I was likely born into a lower social strata or a lower caste. Mm. And regardless of caste, being dark is not a favorable quality in India. It's not considered pretty. And the society really celebrates having fair skin. Mm, I didn't know that. Absolutely. And there are a lot of fairness creams in India and I, I tried a few when I was a teenager. It didn't work. And then after a while, I was like, this is stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you look at Indian, like Bollywood stars and who you see in the media, everyone is fair skinned. They mm-hmm. don't, there's not as much representation of those who are, have a darker skin tone, but you know, a huge, a huge percentage of Indians have darker skin tones. It's just how we're built. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And do, do you call, is it, so it is called colorism. It is called colorism. Yeah, because it's mean, in the black community too. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, those from a lower social strata, they're treated differently and they're not treated nicely by society. Right. That's interesting. I'm so glad you're sharing that because I did think that that was just something with the black culture because our hit, part of our history is that as an enslaved people, we were... Uh, allowed by the whites to do certain things based on our color. You know, Mm -hmm. like light skin got better opportunities than dark skin blacks. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I I just kind of figured it was because of our circumstances here in this country. Yeah, and I'll be bold and say this, but I think I have had more opportunity growing up here than if I had grown up in India. Right. right. And I can see that even in terms of like people you see in the media. Like if you look at someone like Mindy Kaling, she would not have been given a chance in India to be who she is. Right. But she is here in the U.S. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just watching her. I think it was Ocean 8. Did you see that movie? Um, I did not see that movie. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to look it up. But I think she was in Ocean 8. Yeah. I like her. But go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're fine. (laughs) Right. I know what you're saying. Um, she, the opportunities here are much greater than they would be in India for her because of mm-hmm. the sk- color, her tone of her skin. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. I mean, there's 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 issues, there's race issues here in the U.S. too. But I think mm-hmm. people here in the U.S. just see like white versus colored, whereas and then when they see Indians, it's just blanket statement. Everyone is the right. same type of Indian. Right, right. But yeah, so in India, people when we went to this. When stores or like on the streets, they would stare and some people would think I was my mother's help Mm. and would treat me as such. How did your parents deal with that? You know, I don't, I think they always like kept me close to them and they, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know if they didn't notice any of this or if they did notice, but they purposely ignored it because the more you give it attention, the more you're feeding it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And then, you know, when I was, I was kid before I found out I was adopted I would you know there would be homeless children who would come up to us on the street and I noticed I looked more like them than I resembled my own family Mm. that caused a great great deal of internal discomfort and guilt that I like there was really no one I could express that to because I looked like these homeless children or I looked like the cleaning staff that would come to clean our apartment and these beautiful individuals, they would see me, someone who looks like them. But I had more privilege and I mm. had more status. Right. 
my family was this upper upper middle class dynamic set of people and everyone has held high positions and we're well read and we're well accomplished and I obviously behaved like my family members and also there was also the added aspect of I was a bit of a foreigner in India because they could tell I was American they could tell I was not local mm-hmm. but I never wanted to seem snobbish or like I was above any of the others who looked like me and it was just I just felt guilty because I knew there was a difference mm-hmm. and they would look at me like I was one of them and I wanted to show them I was one of them as well but it was it was always going to be different there's like no two ways around it yeah i can imagine that being yeah more than a few internal challenges going on yeah yeah for sure and so i like i mentioned this before but adoption is not something that's talked about openly in south asian or indian culture and even after i found out i was adopted it was an unspoken understanding that it remains within the family it's not something to be shared externally a huge reason obviously is uh, adoption is not discussed is because of this colorism caste is some issue. For the most part, it's impoverished children who end up in orphanages, presumably from a lower, quote unquote, lower caste or lower socioeconomic status. And the idea of bringing someone in like that into an upper socioeconomic status family, it can be met with a lot of judgment and unkind feelings. Mm-hmm. So... Adoption just becomes, it's just this private family matter and it's not shared or announced widely with friends or with the broader community. But if you look at Indian culture, historically, adoption was seen as an act of kindness or of duty rather than like this quote unquote desperation. Like even if you look back on Indian history and mythology, there are key pivotal characters and leaders in the culture who are adoptees. And very openly so. I'm not super well read of Islamic perspectives of adoption. And I'm just making a point of that because Islam and Hinduism are both practiced in India. But I grew up in a Hindu family. But if you look at the Hindu epic, there's an epic called Mahabharata. And there is a very beloved and respected figure, Lord Krishna, and he's adopted. And there are so many tales of Krishna's childhood and how his birth parents, uh, Devaki and Masudeva, they had to give him up for his own safety when he was born. And there are stories of how he was transported to his adoptive parents by his father and how he crossed a sea and then he left them at the adoptive parents' uh, doorstep. And his adoptive parents were Nanda and Yashoda and they doted on him. And society just celebrates the fact that he had two sets of parents and he had two mothers who loved him deeply. And there's no shame around it. And these stories are shared, widely shared from generation to generation and Like my mom, like many other Indian parents, they tell these stories to their kids when growing up. So my mom would tell me these stories when feeding me or before putting me to sleep. And Lord Krishna is just one example. There there are many others. From the same epic Mahabharata, there's another crucial figure called Karna. He's a very pivotal character for the story, and he was adopted. There's Princess Sita, who is a royal figure, and she married Prince Rama, and they caused the whole epic of the Ramayana to take place. So all these figures that are adopted, and if you mention their names in India, they're so widely respected and treasured as part of the culture. And there is no prejudice that they were imposters to their families or to society. Right. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
I did a whole deep dive on this just because I was curious because now the culture in our present day era era has such a taboo and hush hush view of adoption and it's quite a contrast. Well, it's something I really wish would evolve. It's kind of synonymous to I, like a lotus, I think, because it stems from a lot of darkness and sadness and loss. But it emerges from that as this shining, joyful experience for a family because an adoptee that's able to find a home and find a family, it's beautiful. And for a family to gain a new family member, it's also something that should really be openly celebrated by society. Yeah, I appreciate your perspective. And in many ways, I share it. And there, I'm sure there are listeners that do as well. I think what gets a little complicated, because I think adoption is complicated. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, is that some adoptees don't go to good homes, you know, mm-hmm. and some don't have good experiences. And, um, of course, that makes me very sad. And I do hear those stories. And and I think all of us have heard some stories like that. Um, For sure. Yeah. And, and I'm going to go back to the complexity of adoption. I think, and that's why I'm glad you have stepped forward to share your, your experience and, and tell us things that we don't know say about the Indian culture and then your just your personal journey is that the more we come forward and we share, we give society and each other an opportunity to see how complex, how big it really is, you know, mm-hmm. the, the subject is. And and there are plenty of, of and I've heard them, plenty of stories whether we're talking about the journey of as an adoptee through the years from childhood to adulthood, or we're talking about search and reunion, like there's just so much. Um, and, and the stories are so different. You know, we share the Absolutely. commonality of the primal wound. <laughs> and I know <laughs> I, you told me you read that book, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. We share that in common, but we have um, these different twists and turns to our stories that we all need to hear. For sure. And yeah. I realize, even as I'm saying this, that I had the good fortune of being in a very happy family. And so that itself is a privilege. I'm, I'm very aware of that as yeah. I share yeah. my experience. Mm-hmm. So you read The Primal Wound. So at some point you get connected to the adoption community. You want to tell me about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so leading up to me even finding a resource like The Primal Wound... I just, you know, like I said, my teenage years, my early 20s, they were very dark, very difficult. I felt like I needed to be this perfect poster child that fit into my family's expectations and life goals. And I didn't want to stick out and draw more attention to myself and how I am different. And looking back, I clearly, very clearly have had depression and anxiety that I was not able to identify at that time. And I sort of had to push through and cope on my own. Again, Indian culture tends to glorify those who suck it up and don't show emotions and don't show their struggles. And for young females, it's expected that they sort of cast their struggles aside and march on for the benefit of others. Mm -hmm. So many times expressing the need for help or expressing pain or emotional instability, it's dismissed or you're going to be seen as ungrateful and weak. And so I just I didn't want to stir the pot and I just wanted to go along with what my parents wanted. And I wanted to make my loved ones proud and happy and I just, there was a lot of inner conflict and pressure and I put on myself for, for many, many years. And so then I came across the primal wound in my 20s and 
that's why I learned how the separation from of a baby from its mother causes this deep lasting trauma mm-hmm. and literally changes the way the baby's brain is wired and grows. Yes. And that started to give me answers to decode my mental state, um, address some of the emotions that I had never been able to articulate growing up. And that feeling, as even as a kid where I just sort of had this looming feeling of melancholy around me, that made sense. Yeah. That immediately made sense. But before reading The Primal Wound, before knowing any of this, all I felt were the effects of trauma, but I couldn't even remember the events that had caused it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I had to seek out answers on my own. And even then, it just, I still, it was kind of like the blind leading the blind, but I was the blind leading the blind. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have the right resources to turn to as a sounding board in terms of adoptee literature, but also for my own stuff. So I mentioned I hadn't seen my adoption papers. And a couple of years ago, I found my adoption papers in my parents' house. And I quietly read through them as fast as I could before I stuffed them back into the briefcase they were in, tucked it away back in the closet where it was. That was the first time I heard of my orphanage's name. And, you know, I immediately looked them up online and I've been following them on social media since. You know, I still haven't seen pictures from the day I was adopted. I don't really know the emotions or the processes that led to my adoption. The primal wound was my first, I guess, real introduction to, oh my gosh, there's the whole community and world out there for adoptees like myself. Right. Was that like a couple of years ago that you read it? I think I read it in 2018. Okay. Yeah. So you've kind of been connected to the community in one way or another since that time? Yeah, mainly through literature. Well, one cool thing that came up because I found that my orphanage's name was once I started following them on social media, I was actually able to connect with another adoptee who I found out overlapped during my three months there when I was a baby. Wow. Um, That's really big. Yeah. So the orphanage had made a Facebook post about him because he had visited the orphanage as an adult. And the post mentioned how he was adopted in late 1993. And I was like, oh, I was there in 1993. So I decided to be bold and reach out to him on Facebook and say hi. Mm -hmm. And we chatted for a bit. And from the looks of it and the way he described the orphanage, because I've never visited, we were probably in the same room where they had babies during the fall of 1993. And we would have been there for a bit, for a few months before we found our respective families. I am getting so excited. (laughs) It was so heartwarming to just feel like I had connected with a small piece of my path. Yes. And that's how it works. Oh my Mm -hmm. goodness. That's how it works. Yeah. So do you have plans to go if you went, well, when you go back to India? I would like to visit someday. So my husband and I, we wanted to visit India after we got married in 2019. And obviously the pandemic hit and we just, we have not been able to go since. So we're, we're planning a trip. I think I do want to visit the orphanage. I think it'll, it just, I need to emotionally get ready for it. And it's going to take a little bit for me to get there. Right. Cause you were there before. Like when Mm -hmm. I visited where my mom was when prior to giving birth and when she gave birth when I went back there it wasn't an orphanage it was a um a gr- like a girl's home you know and they had a hospital yeah. and that kind of thing and and I remember when I went back and you do have to get ready emotionally no doubt and mm-hmm. um I remember when I went back I was like I was here before yeah 
Oh, it, yeah, it moves me every time I think about it. So, yeah. I know. If I think about it, I start to tear <laughs> up. But... Yeah, yeah. So, no, I do want to visit. I think I just also, I have to mentally prepare that there are going to be other children there. And I think I'm going to feel it very deeply in my heart, you know, that yeah. I had the opportunity to find a home and these kids still haven't yet. And so that's that's just, it's very sad. So it's, I, I need to prep for it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Sure. Yeah, but that's exciting to connect with another adoptee. That and it sounds like he's done a, quite a bit of work. Yeah, so he he lives all the way on the other side of the world near the Pacific Islands. Okay. Um. So we have obviously not met in person, but we're Facebook friends. Like I know he's been to the orphanage, so if I have any questions, I I feel comfortable reaching out and be like, oh, so what did it look like, or you know, where are the people like, whatever it might be. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what's been the most rewarding thing uh, about being connected to the adoption community? Yes. So I have been yearning to join a space where adoptee experiences could be shared and discussed. And I didn't know where to look for that for the longest time. So I think the biggest, most rewarding thing now is finding that I have a whole community I can connect with. I can share, you know, I can share just thoughts, whether it's sadness or pain, whether it's happy things, whether it's just nuances of being an adoptee. Mm -hmm. I have a community where I can openly discuss it and have dialogue. Then that Um, just just feels so good. It does. It really, really does. So 2020 was a huge year for me. And I know, I know it was a pivotal year for literally all of us across the world. Right. But it was game changing for me in terms of personal growth and well-being. I was able to spend a lot of devoted time addressing my mental health. One, what came of it was the realization of how deeply I've been impacted by not having these resources or mm-hmm. not having a sp- safe space to talk about things while growing up. Yes. I didn't know how to label my feelings for the longest time. I knew something was not ideal, but I didn't know how to ask for help. This is after periods in my teenage years, my early 20s, where the depression and the anxiety were crushing. Like I've just been to some really dark places in my mind. And mm-hmm. so... And like adoption, I mentioned, like mental health is not discussed or considered in South Asian culture. So there are ongoing changes that are happening within the culture, especially with Gen Z being a lot more aware and they're advocating for mental health um, resources, both in India and here in the U.S. within the Indian immigrant community, because there's just there's just so much to unpack in terms of generational trauma and discussing topics that are normally not discussed or they're diminished or dismissed. But You know, like growing up, it's not something I knew how to address or I didn't know how to provide that soothing care for. So being able to seek out therapy and finally get clarity on unresolved trauma was so long overdue. And I keep saying I wish I could have addressed it earlier, but you know what? Better late than never. That's right. And yeah, now that I'm able to dissect and interpret my anxieties and my traumas growing up and from my adolescence, I'm able to work through them. I'm also more settled in my life where I feel empowered to start giving back. And I think that's the most exciting thing for me. I'm still in the early stages of becoming better acquainted with the adoption community. But my goal at this point, now that I have the means to as well, is to create a space where, create a space or create resources that advocate for adoptee wellness and mental health awareness in the South Asian communities. And just I didn't have someone to turn to as a teen. So now I realize I can be that person, not just to myself now, but I could be that for others who may be in a similar position that I was in. Yes. 
You know, I am just so pleased. Like what you just said, I hope the listener will just rewind that and listen to that twice because that is big. You wanting to jump right in and do the work. And you're talking about the the well-being piece, Mm -hmm. the well-being, because as you said... You, you may be a person may be struggling with depression and not even know, especially if say LDAs, not even know you're adopted, you yeah. know, and then we have life, right? Life does what it does that don't have nothing to do with adoption. And so, like <laughs> you know, you know, just things that happen to us throughout our journeys and well-being is like, that's, that's it. Just day to day. Um, being able to be your best and and work at whatever it is that's troubling you, and then you put the pieces together. Oh, it may be connected to this. I'm mm-hmm. adopted, yeah. So let me get with the community there. And oh, I'm just so pleased to know that you want to be involved in that way. I really do. I really, really do. And there are like there are three big things if I could say right now that I want to bring more adopt the more adoptions, <laughs> more awareness to, mm-hmm. especially to the South Asian community um, regarding adoptees. So I think one, going back to the primal wound, that separation of an infant from its mother, when it is solely reliant on a parent for survival, that's something adoptive parents or family members may never understand. Mm-hmm. But it's a legitimate sadness and it causes a deep fear of abandonment and that pain that pain runs deep because you know you've been essentially quote unquote rejected from one set of guardians it creates a lifelong yearning to want to be accepted and unconditionally loved right for your authentic self Mm -hmm. so i think it's so important you know instead of shunning orphans or shunning those from lower statuses as a society there needs to be more kindness and more love and more empowerment that is shared to you know as a society to say these are our children. It's not just, oh, that's your kid and you rejected them. These are our children. We need right. to come together to love them and raise them. And then along those lines, <laughs> sensitivity and mental health is not a weakness. If anything, it's a strength and it's a source of resilience. So there really, really needs to be increased awareness and acceptance and proactive resources for mental and emotional well-being. Oh, I love um, that. Yes, it's it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to reach out and ask for answers. And answers may not come easily or immediately, but each of us deserves to know our own stories. And we deserve to receive care and guidance and mental clarity. We do. No one should be denied that. That's right. We deserve that for sure. Yep. I guess we can wrap this this great conversation up. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to tell me? No, I think just, and this is more for my loved ones, my broader family members, like having my own past, it doesn't make me any less loved by my parents or my family. And I think that's something huge we all can remind ourselves of. I can have a different birth family and a different birthplace that we don't know of. And it can openly be talked about and pondered about. And that does not mean I'm not a member of my family. Um, I think avoiding the topic of adoption and the details around it essentially does make the adoptee feel othered Mm -hmm. or like they have to fit a mold of their adoptive family and you know like if they don't fit that mold anything outside of that is wrong or should be discarded but 
it's okay. We can all have our own past and we can still all be a family and love each other. Those two things can all coexist. <laughs> There's more than enough room, isn't it? Absolutely. That's how I feel. Like you, I just, I love my parents. They were wonderful. Uh, my extended family, like everybody was, I was good, you know? And yet that was separate and apart from wanting to know my original family, you know, yeah. my original identity. Yeah, so I totally agree. And I just thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I think uh, I'm going to ask you to come back uh, because, sure. you, yeah, your story's unfolding for sure because you're so young. And for you to, to have the courage to come forward is just wonderful. I mean, it really is um, because it's not easy. And I, and I often say that it's not easy to be so public and honest and open in the community and so it, it's a, a privilege to hear from you today thank you and i just have one more thing to say like you know in spite of the hurdles and the ups and downs i am very grateful to have been given the life that i lead to be given the chance for opportunities and for growth and for love which none of these things were guaranteed when i was born and it's my parents and it's my family and now my husband who have provided me the care and a platform where I'm not comfortable being my authentic self. And that itself is such a privilege that I'm aware of. I don't take a single day for granted because I know I was not promised this life. It's almost like I was given a second life as a gift. So yeah, I just want to take the opportunities and the luck that I've been blessed with and use it to help and empower others. And thank you so much, Jennifer, because I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity to share my experiences. And I'm so excited to continue advocating for adoptee stories to be shared and appreciated. This is just the start. If you could see the smile on my face, I'm just, I'm delighted. Oh, if you could see the smile on my face. <laughs> wow. I believe Narajani covered so much here from Indian culture, colorism, mixed messages, and the damage secrets cause even when you feel loved by your family. She and I are of different races, but can identify with parallels in how adoption is often viewed within our respective cultures. I felt the painful experience through Narajani's words, her storytelling, of being the last one to know in her family of her status as an adopted person. She totally put me at the scene many years ago when the anticlimactic, as she put it, reveal of news to her cousins who already knew what she just discovered about herself. When she first spoke of pretending at times she was adopted as a child, prior to knowing she too was an adopted person, I believe her compassion and empathy for adoptees started at an early age. Finally, I light up when she shares her desire to focus on the mental well-being of adoptees. She has identified based on her lived experience just how she can best serve the community. I look forward to seeing great things from her now and in the future. Thank you, Narajani, for reaching out to me and having this conversation. As most listeners of the show know by now, I'm always delighted to hear from your generation I learn so much, and others do too. You have so much to share in Adoption Land. 
Your willingness to get started early in life suggests to me that things will continue to get better with your participation. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianeghoston.com. Thank you so much for being here and be sure and follow me on Instagram at Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land.